You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien. Brought to you by Joe. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Unfiltered with me, James O'Brien, and I am due to be joined this week by Scroobius Pip, a, a sort of renaissance man of our age, really. He's covered everything, as you know, from, from music right through to a, an astonishingly successful podcast, which may have been some sort of inspiration for this one. So, so hopefully I won't make a complete tit of myself. You started your podcast three years ago. Your story starts long before that, and obviously yeah, it starts with a with a different given name as well. Yeah, so I'm, I'm yeah. going to begin by saying I'm here to learn as much from you about this kind <laughs> of content production, yeah. as the kids call it, but also um, uh, to, to learn as much about you as I can. Yeah, that's great. Well. But look at what it's all developed into. Like we were saying just before we started, it's great that podcasting and this... Or, independently produced media and again unfiltered is exactly the term for it it's it's what drew me to podcasting was I was I was I had done some work on radio and all I was listening to was podcasts and the yes. fact that podcasts had no like I went on Joe Rogan's podcast in America when I had my radio show in the UK and I just I just won an award and stuff like that and um off air he kind of said to me so why have you got so why are you, are you doing it for someone else and I was like, well, it's, it's commercial radio, it's this platform. And he's like, but, but why? So I literally, I went back and said, look, I'm going to start a podcast if that's okay. It's been it's been lovely. Like, yeah. Let's end as friends. And that was the whole appeal of doing a podcast, was that you've got no boss, you've got no one to tell you what you can and can't say. Mate, this is not going well at all. This is, I'm sort of sitting here feeling great. Look at the greenness of your grass. So, I mean, the industry will... We'll go through all sorts of paroxysms yeah. and changes in the coming years, but you, you you still seem to be at the at the vanguard of of a lot of these changes. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's kind of nice. Again, I always have to kind of give credit because I get a lot of praise for for being one of the first long form podcasts yes. and unedited and casual. America was doing it for ages. I was listening to Mark Maron and Joe Rogan and all these other people, and that's what kind of jumped out to me. Of I don't see anyone doing that over here. Hugely, and, and radio had very much become soundbitey, yeah. and I think they've both got a place. I'm always wary that because you do one thing, people have the assumption that you think every other way of doing things is wrong. Yes, it's not. Um, the clips of your show that go that that would spread on on Facebook and social media were a huge way of engaging people who wouldn't sit down and listen to a whole show or to a whole thing. And they're all valid, mm. but I kind of I like the idea of a show that nothing can be taken out of context because you've got a lot of time to give context. If if, if they're all ninety minutes long, yes. then no one can claim afterwards. Oh, that was taken out of context. Like, well, we gave you the chance. Well, let's start with you then. We'll start at the beginning in Stamford La Hope. Yeah. Um, what, what sort of kid were you? Um, I was I was quite a shy kid. Um, at the age of four, I almost drowned, and that caused me to have a stutter. So I was a shy kid almost by default and sometimes a funny kid as defence as well because it's that kind of... It's that weird thing of, if, like, if you start a new school, the first thing that... Oh, everyone's nervous and scared yeah. and wants to find someone to be a victim that isn't also, them. Every, everyone thinks that... No-one realises that everyone else is nervous yeah, and scared as well. completely. But the, the thing is, at the start of school, the first thing they do is call the register and if the first first thing that happens is you can't say... Yeah. here or whatever else if you stutter on a word you're then oh there's the target right do you know what I mean so anything. it's kind of that's the victim yeah, so it's, ginger hair glasses yeah, but a stutter exactly. is particularly live anything, isn't it any of those things yeah. but again I, I would easily argue that ginger hair or glasses are equally as much of a or can be as much of a target as a stutter but so you it's can like, take your glasses off you can dye your hair yeah yeah exactly but um so yeah but that was weird but it it's. I believe that my stutter is responsible for my whole career, from spoken word and rap to to talking on podcasts. Because I wasn't a particularly bright kid. Uh, my English teacher <laughs> warned a mate of mine to not, or t took a mate of mine aside and said, "Look, you can do better than hanging out with with David, of my given name." Given um, so I wasn't this great student, but I developed quite a wide vocabulary. 
almost as a survival tactic because mm. I'd be thinking ahead of words I'm going to stutter on and replacing them oh, okay. with other words. That's how it works mentally. Yeah, yeah. like chess. Particularly at that point, yeah. yeah. And it's something that I think from an early age, although I wasn't a big reader, I try and read a lot more now, but I wasn't a big, big, big reader as a kid. As soon as I started on the music scene or whatever, everyone assumed I was wonderfully educated because I had quite a wide vocabulary and wove it into my lyrics. And it was like, no, no, that was... It's like cultural references a, as well, though. It's, yeah. not, it's not just like you swallowed a thesaurus or something like no, that. No, yeah, again, it's kind of that... It's trying to have that awareness of things. I, I, I lucked out on having a big brother that's far more intelligent than me. So he got his, his, his philosophy degree and things like that. So the bulk of the books... Again, as I wasn't a big reader as a kid, the bulk of the books I've read in my life have been stuff my brother has said, here's what you need to read. Special. And again, it's not fair because he's read t t 10 books to get to that point. Sure. And he gets, so ignore them nine, here's the one you need. And it's like, oh, God damn it, I'm getting a shortcut here. So That's again, a hack, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I, I do feel I've hacked, hacked my way into the appearance of intelligence. Oh, but it's, again, it's that openness to, to ideas. Are, are we sure that the stutter was linked to the drowning incident? Um, Is that... From what I've heard, yeah, mm. generally stutters come from traumatic events. Again, I find all of it fascinating because we don't yes. understand the brain at all. I On, on, as, on one of the, the guests on my podcast, I had the comedian... Dylan Moran. Yes. And as I, I said his name there, I tapped it out on my on my thigh because if I try and say his name without tapping it, I say Dylan Moran, and it's always something I stutter on. Right. And and you know that a bassist in a band just taught me a tapping thing. And again, I'm convinced that it's why like you the, the famous example is always Gareth Gates or of my yes, generation of was he started and when he sung he didn't stutter. And yes. again, if People will comment that when I rap, I don't stutter. But I think it's having a slight distraction. And that just, the rhythmicness of going Dylan Moran, Dylan Moran, and tapping it out on my leg, adjusts that. And I find that shit fascinating. Yeah, it um, it's, it's bizarre that, yeah, we don't understand the human brain at all. But, yeah, I, I had some hypnosis. And I didn't know about the drowning thing as a kid being a big deal. Yeah. My parents at the time had played it down hugely. Yeah, of course. My main memory was my dad who came out and, and saved me just saying, oh, you've ruined my trainers and we making light seaside, of it. Yeah, yeah, we're right. at the seaside in France. Um, and yeah, it, I had this hypnosis and we kind of looked back and that that j jumped out somewhere in my subconscious as an event, which is fascinating because, again, I'd kind of, I'd been sceptical of hypnosis because I'd been led to believe it was controlling people and they, and they don't know what's going on. Pretty much all the time in hypnosis, I felt aware. Right. It's okay. as much a relaxation thing and drawing you back and trying to pick bits out of your your mind. So yeah, in that that that's kind of, of what we found. And we found that I had like a recurring dream where I couldn't. A witch was coming up my stairs and I couldn't right. scream out to my parents. And she believed that that was from from when I was trying to scream out to my parents in the sea yes. and waves were going in my mouth, and that was kind of the trigger for this weird And it goes so glitch. deep. It goes so deep yeah. that you're not going to be able to dig it back out yeah, uh, without uh, help. Exactly. But again, it's it's something that I'm fine with now. I kind of just think of yeah. it as an accent as much as anything. It's, when you said you think it's a big part of, of everything you've done subsequently, yeah. is, is that because if, if you were going to refuse to be cowed by something, then some of the choices you've made would be the most resounding evidence that you're not cowed? I mean... It, I wish it was as bold as that. I, I, I honestly don't think it's, it's quite as bold as that. During the hypnosis, a lot of the thing that she taught me was breathing techniques to make me a calmer person because it was just felt that... And again, with anything like that, the more you think about it, the worse it's going to be. <laughs> and as we've kind of highlighted, the reality of humans is n no one cares about it as much as you do. No. Everyone's the lead actor in their own film. So you're sitting there thinking, I started on that, everyone's thinking about it. In... We're, in the nicest way I can put it, no one's thinking about you after you've left the room. They're thinking about their own lives yeah. and what they're going to have for dinner. So, so true. She kind of she taught me these these techniques to make me calmer, and I think the timing I wasn't great because it was around the time of my GCSEs, and I remember in certain exams there was at least two that I was the first to finish, and I kind of said I'm done, I'll go, and they're like, oh you've got you've got more time if you, if you want to go over, and I was like no. I've Nailed it. I've answered what I know. Is aware that I hadn't done great and I right. didn't do great, but I'd, I'd taken on this calmness. And I think oh, that okay. has influenced me a lot in life, that right. I don't panic 
too much. I felt guilty when I got my uh, radio show on XFM because there was a lot of of articles written that it was bold of them and me to give a person with a stutter a radio show on hip-hop and spoken word. And honestly, it hadn't crossed my mind until them articles came out. I just hadn't thought about it. And I'll have people with stutters contact me and say how inspirational it is that in, in, in the face of these challenges I push through, I just don't think about it that much. Until someone says, oh, it's good that you're doing that despite having a stutter. I'm like... Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> that's 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 my thing, isn't it? But it was a problem. Clearly, you mentioned being singled out at school. Yeah, we'll, we'll just we'll just move through the school days and, yeah, then, sure. and then crack on with everything that's happened subsequently. I mean, did did you have a very tough time? Did you get no? I wouldn't no. say I was at the bottom of the pile, but I also wasn't at the top of the pile. Um, it, I didn't know how to react to it. At times, I'd shy away. At times, I'd lash out. I always remember a kid. Um, taking the mick out of my, my, my starter at school and I thought to myself he's again in a, it's school days I was like he's one of the nerds Yeah, I don't have to take that from him I was like I know I'm not at the top but yeah. I know I'm not at the it's bottom it's astonishing isn't it so how we fit ourselves yeah. into the hierarchy so I did and I reacted and pushed him over and he went and told a prefect and things like that and I was lucky that the prefect was friends with my older brother so they, they kind of just said you can't push kids over particularly when they're near stairs he might have gone down the stairs slightly um but so again it was that weird weird balance i think Mm. also at that point i got into punk and metal and stuff like that so you kind of if i'm going to be an outsider i'm going to be an outsider by choice at that point i think was part of that going yeah i'm going to wear it as a badge i'm a punk and whatever else it's it all bleeds into it i think and and so live performance was big in your life quite early on I mean going to gigs and stuff like yeah, that going to, to gigs was hugely um, I was never in bands at a, a young age me and my mates had bands <laughs> but, but they never got out of my my garage or the spare room or anything else so but yeah gigs were everything as a kid I'd go from f- 15 onwards any pocket money I got any yeah. small jobs I had it'd be it'd be gigs so yeah that was a constant thing and I think that helped with uh, when I years and years later started to perform live, because hip hop, as much as I, I love it with a passion, for a long time it wasn't that great a live medium. No, I guess there was not. a lot of rappers who sure. just kind of stand there, and it wasn't yes. much. So, because I'd grown up going to punk gigs, as soon as I started doing our live performances, it was it was energetic, and I'd finish every gig drenched in sweat. Rap. A lot of the stuff I'd seen was more of a, st- a, st- a studio art form, or Got you know, in in yeah. in in the the ghetto in the hood, and, and, in the, and in surprisingly the mannered, surprisingly controlled. Yeah, yeah, not, not with Hugely. the kind of exuberance and the, and the wildness that you'd have got. At a... And again, it's why it, it shot like I've. How did you get into it? How did you discover it? Because I mean, it's a, it's it's a generational thing. It's a geographical thing. It's it's, yeah. it's an ethnic thing. It, yeah. what, 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 how did the sort of planets align for you? Or again, it it it's I had. I had Don Letts on the podcast on my podcast mm. recently, and it it made perfect sense talking to him because hip hop was America's punk. Punk was the voice of the voiceless people who haven't got the equipment, haven't got this and that, but need to express themselves in a way. And and hip hop was the same in America in the ghettos. So as soon as I stumbled upon rap, it it clicked. It clicked for me. It felt like a scene I'd always loved. So. Um, but what started me on spoken word, I kind of, I'd heard Gil Scott Heron and Saul Williams and Sage Francis and people like that. How, how come? How, who, who were your, I mean, was it your big brother again? Yeah, Passing again, stuff down to you? probably big brother p- 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 passing things on. But again, it was the times where I wasn't r- rich. So was, you'd yeah. get one or two albums and you'd listen to them on repeats. So I knew every every yeah. lyric of Sage's, of Saul Williams, of, of Gil, of all these people. So yeah, it was, it was passed on in, in that way. I guess... My uncle was the only person in my family who was into into music passionately, yeah. I guess. He was the first label manager of Trojan Records. Oh, wow. And whilst at the time, I was like, oh, that's cool, but I didn't really didn't really understand reggae. I was kind sure. of, it was great. But, I mean, you saw that energy and that's that, semi- and that, that yeah. passion f- yeah, yeah. for music. So that was an exciting thing there. So, yeah, passed on f- from my brother. Again, that simple thing of in drops 
he'd, he'd recommend a record or give me a record and then I'd go off on tangents that all came from that, I guess. Been quite um, blessed with mentors then. Huh? So I know yeah. that's only two, but it still seems to have played an immense part in, in your development. Oh, like, literally immeasurably so. People like, like Sage Francis is now on my record label mm. and Saul Williams has been on my podcast and things like that. It's like these, these, these people who before they'd ever known me, were huge mentors to me because they showed me what rap could be, what yeah. all this music could be, have then continued to be actual a, a real-life mentors. And, yeah, so I started doing spoken word because I lived in a small town in Essex and there's not a wealth of producers and, and things, things like that. So I was like, well, sp- spoken word. So it's weird because I always feel guilty because I get a lot of real poetry experts yeah. kind of trying to connect with me on 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 the history of poetry and i fell in love with poetry after getting into it again as similar as you were saying on podcasts how it kind of you started it and then you're like oh yeah isn't this cool i started it because i liked the fact that you, you you live and die on your own sword if you have a bad gig it's your fault if you have a good gig it's your fault there's no kind of oh, the drummer's heart isn't in it, or the bassist never turns up to practice, or, or things like that. It's like, no, it's all and on yet, me. What you've, you've nailed immediately is 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 the thing that a, a, a lot of people unfamiliar with spoken word won't get, is that the dynamic is is as, at least as much about the performance as it is about yeah. the words. Yeah, completely. And all of that, I yeah, the performance, the, the masquerade of it all. Did you see it as a viable career at that point in your life? Ambitions came down to not wanting to get a real job. Right. And that's still the ambition. Um, that's, right. that's the driving force. By coming. which you mean getting yeah. out of bed the same yeah. day, going the same way to go and do pretty and, much the same and, thing and yeah. then come home. Exactly. I, again, in Stanfordly Hope, it's it's a 45-minute train journey into London, and at school you were kind of believed or trained to believe that you get good grades and then you go and work in London. Right. It took me years to realise I didn't know what that job was. Yeah. I knew that I was meant to put on a suit and go and work in the city right. and earn money yeah. and make a good wage. Sure. I didn't know what I was meant to be doing in the city or what these offices held. I mean, it is a convoy, the corners. Though, yeah, it was, it was literally, yeah. that was the point of going in there. And I knew I didn't want to do that. How and did I, you know that you didn't want to do that? Um, it just wasn't f- for me. Again, it's weird because a lot of people from my school days or college days were shocked that when I got into music or into acting or any, any of the other things, because I wasn't drama school kid I wasn't sure. somebody who wanted to be the centre of attention or was comfortable was being so you the centre of attention you don't have to look at me Gene do you no you don't need to be yeah. that sort of centre of attention type completely person. completely that I, I would sink into the background a lot in, in comfortable scenarios course, obviously I'd lighten course. up a lot but yeah, yeah in, in general I wouldn't I want to be that guy so it, sh- it, sh- it shocked a lot of people but yeah there was always that belief that again it sounds ridiculous but that I was meant to do I was meant to do something else. Yeah. And I think that was as much as anything it was an avoidance it's of like going and working in the city. Right, Davis type worldview, yeah. isn't it? Just yeah. that idea that, that this this is That isn't for me. I don't know what is road. for me, but that isn't for me. Yeah. I know I know what I don't want to do. And so, then you stumble along until you find out what you do want to do. So a record shop HMV yeah. would not feel like a proper job because no. you don't have to wear a suit. You're exactly. just as likely to be in there as a customer and because it, I mean, HMV in particular, it still had quite a kind of rough around the edges feel to Particularly it. at that point, yes. we were in charge of ordering our own stock. So the HMV in Lakeside had the best range of of indie rap in, in the country. And would people I'd know all, that? Would you have people making pilgrimages to I'd you? I'd recommend people, yeah. yeah. It, it was, it was again, it'd be local paper. It's not like it built any great notoriety, but there sure, would be sure. people who would be in to buy a Nas record. And I'd be able to say, have you heard? Rhyme Sayers or Def Jucks or Strange Famous or these other labels because I'd get I'd be allowed to get a copy in and yeah. things like that and I and yeah would recommend them and the same with f- f- films and stuff as well I was a massive a film and TV nerd and that was the same thing you'd kind of go right we can get some some cool stuff and e- even more so I'd say more it was a learning opportunity than a teaching opportunity okay the fact is there was a guy there who'd worked the classical and jazz section for right. years yeah. so he could open me up to stuff and it wasn't like how it is now how you could just go online and broaden your horizons then you, you, you had to risk your your one or two cds a month on something you've not heard of yeah. so you wouldn't do that you'll go you tried and tested i want more punk i want more yeah. more hip-hop so 
God, working in the record yeah, store and having deal, people choosing. go in the stock rooms just going like Gil Scott Heron is one that I heard in the in the stock rooms of, for the first time and I remember an album was on and Pieces of a Man started and it f- froze me until the end of the song I, I, literally the song ended and it felt like I'd j- j- just come out of it like I didn't know, I didn't know where I was I was just hypnotised by this song and I wouldn't have got that if I hadn't I worked in a record store and had people to say this is what you want to listen to yeah. you know that my that the sole person had done that in the past was my brother now there was all these people who were experts in all different areas so. I, I was uh, I was working in River Island in Worcester at about the same time and the experience couldn't have been more different we yeah. once <laughs> we once listened to Mac the Knife 400 times in two weeks <laughs> exactly I mean that was that, that was the beauty of the difference between the shop floor and the stock room yes. the shop floor would be more led by chart um, and big releases but, but even then, we'd tend to have four or five albums on rotation. Sure. And there'd be three or four big chart ones, and you'd be able to sneak one That's in, as long one. as it didn't have any swears. Yeah. Sneak one in into that rotation, and yeah, it was always an achievement if people reacted to there's, it. There's always a... I've got a soft spot for retail, but there's yeah. a camaraderie as well, isn't there? Particularly there really if you're is. doing something that's a bit cultural, like yeah. a record shop, because you are swapping influences, swapping passion, swapping enthusiasm. Completely. Customers and sometimes feel like an interruption. 100%, and they become... It, it, I've made some of my best mates there. Again, it, it's bizarre to me the hate that people have, have for retail at times, because that yeah. was a beautiful time yeah. for me. I, it's where I started writing my album and, and finished it as I finished um, and it's where I met a lot of my, my f- friends for life and the way you entertain each other like the, the writing started because a weird write uh, uh, diss raps about each other on the back of till receipts <laughs> and, and, and it, you, you know you'd have your hour on the till and you'd come off and, and come out the back and you'd written a whole verse about Stu who works yeah. there or Mark or whoever yeah, else yeah. and the entertainment <laughs> you'd make for yourselves. I was talking, to, again, to a friend I worked with there recently who, who reminded me that one of our most joyous games, and I generally remember it as one of the funniest things I've done in my life, was we'd see what we could say without the customer noticing. So in, instead of, like, you'd generally go, here's your CD and the receipts in your bag, we'd try and say, and there's a sheep in your bag, or I'm asleep in your bag. And people, if they're not trying to listen of to it, not. everyone else has to keep a straight face. You go, there you go, and I'm asleep in your bag. <laughs> Again, just things like that were just wonderfully entertaining to us. Yeah, and you don't get that in a lot of other places, it's I guess. True. So, well, I guess because you're on rails, whereas in, yeah. in, in a shop there's different stuff going on. So you were writing then. When did you yeah. first write? When did you first think, I still be David then. Yeah. I, 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 I could maybe have a go at this. I could well, actually maybe do this. Well, that's kind of an interesting f- footnote there is I've been Scroobius Pip for years. It was never a stage n- name, name thing. It's, something it's an Edward I took Lear on. poem. Or it it's, is... it's from an Edward Lear poem. Yeah. Again, the misconception that I'm really w- 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 well read, I first saw the name Scroobius Pip, you know, in HMV, the, 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 they used to have little... F- fun books on the till that, yes. that, that had a book of dogs names right. and Scroobius Pip was in there and I then saw that and then read the Edward Lear poem and it appealed to me because at that point I was doing a lot of street art I was doing okay. f- photography and trying to m- m- make some films with my mates I was trying to make music and the Scroobius Pip is about a creature that wakes up and doesn't doesn't know what it is and it goes with the fish for a bit and realise it isn't a fish it goes mm. with the lions it realises it isn't a lion and by the end it realises that all those things are fine but it is its own creature it is a Scroobius Pip so it was at the point where I dropped out of a uni where I'd done photography and I was like why did you drop out? Um, I don't like that I've yeah? been brought up a in, a, in a family that you have what you can afford and you, you don't have anything else and yeah, I think it's something that's that's missing from society a lot of these days, that yeah. we all want things that we're not entitled... Or we think that we're entitled to everything. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I started doing... I did my first year and I looked and I was like, I'm already four or five grand in debt and I'm doing an art form that I think the real benefit is from doing it and yeah. from learning it, rather than... A, like, if you've got a certificate to say, I'm good at photography... Mm. They're going to uh, uh, look at your portfolio and make their own mind up. They're not going to go, all right, well, (laughs) I mean, I don't like your portfolio, but (laughs) it's printed there, so (laughs) are you employed? So, yeah, it was exactly that. I was like, I didn't didn't 
believe in it. I loved it because it meant I got to use these big medium format cameras mm. and studios and develop my own film and things like that. But I couldn't justify it. I couldn't justify getting thousands and thousands of pounds in debt. Um, and you got no regrets. To take some photos. No. Again, it, it, it all, all, all worked out right in the end. And I think so I would got, have regretted it if I stuck around because I was in love with traditional photography and at that point very anti-digital photography okay. and the changes in photography. Now it's caught up and it's amazing. Yes. I think it's all fantastic. But I know I'm too stubborn to have embraced that at the time. So right, I would have yeah, yeah. got all my experience in a form that, kind of has been replaced slightly yeah. and replaced again digital has become amazing now sure. so yeah I feel I would have got thousands and thousands of pounds in debt and been like I can print a really good photo I'm like yeah, what's, yeah I don't need it printed no. just sh sure. email it to me yeah it was quite bold though presumably yeah. I mean to, to, to walk away after a year yeah it was it was scary there was but yeah again it was that I still didn't know what I wanted to, but you did do. in a way because you knew you had to I know uh, I had to do something and, but more than that you knew you had to express yourself I, I, mm. I already you, you, some of the language you use you apologise when you don't need to because you clearly are creative and you clearly knew already at this point before you even went away to study photography you knew that you were going to only really be happy if you were doing something that involved yeah. art right you were an artist creating art in would some way would you have way, called yeah. yourself an artist at that stage in your life I don't Think you so felt I still struggle to now. Yeah, I would have <laughs> I thought have, so. Kind of pretentious. I always loved I, when I started to get a bit of a name on the spoken word scene. Yes. Th there was a poet called Inua Elms who had a statement just saying, "You can never call yourself a poet. That's the uh, that's other people's job. Yeah. If someone else wants to call you a poet, cool. If not, and I kind of always liked that. It's why yeah. I always go along the spoken word route because." It's literal. I literally, I spoke Speed words. words. No, I do spoken words. No, no. I'm still doing it in every <laughs> format. So, yeah. Yeah, that kind of drew me there. So did you start writing and then start performing it? Or, or was it all, was it was it simultaneous? Yeah. Well, that's the kind of interesting part that was only highlighted recently. So I saved up uh, to record my first album. And then the idea was, so basically I'd climbed up the ranks in retail yes. and I was offered, I was asked to go in, I was going to say audition, interview, yeah. I'm, all, I'm all showbiz now. I was asked to, to, to go and interview for um, <laughs> an assistant manager's job. Yeah. And I decided, right, I've been telling myself I'm making this record. And at the moment, either I need to stop that illusion and oh, put yeah. myself 100% into retail, which again, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, or I need to be 100% in this. So I'd saved up enough. My plan was to quit and try music full-time for a year. And if it worked out, cool. If not, I'll go back to retail and figure it out. It felt like a reasonable amount of time. Yes. Um, and, yeah, I hadn't realised until it was highlighted recently, because it was, it was recently the t a 10-year anniversary of my first album, that I quit. I'd recorded the album, I quit, and I went on the road. And at that point, I'd never performed live so again, I put it down for not thinking or forgetfulness, but there's a weird boldness or confidence there that I've put everything in one basket and I've never even s stepped on a stage and performed any of this. I practised it all, and that was key f key for me. It goes goes back to where we were talking about the the presentation. Yes. Um, yeah, so I knew that I'd get up there and it would seem... I knew I could perform it in a polished manner. Whether or not people would like it, I didn't know. Right. And that's... Everything in my career, I've always kind of like, I don't know if I'm going to be good at acting or at podcasting, but I know I've got the work ethic. I know I can learn my lines and prep the podcast and these other things. If it then works out, if it then turns out I'm good at it, then great. Sure. But that's the part I know I've got. So again, there's always that. And does that, does that, does a lack that, of confidence, I guess. Well, that's what I was about to ask, because does that insulate you from fear of failure a bit as well because you've got the craft you've just described you've got the work ethic you've yeah. you know where things fit so even if it doesn't set the world on fire you're not going to crash and burn in a way in a way as a after my years of an emotional heartbroken teen um i learned that with a relationship if it's all it it feels a lot better for a relationship to end knowing you've done everything you can to make it work. Yes. Then the failure of it isn't as bad because, like, right, 
I did everything I could. It's out of my control. Yes. And that then translated well into everything a work base. It's like, right, I know I've done my bit. I know I've done all the prep. If it works, that's great. If it fails, I couldn't have done anything more. That's the best I could do as a human. So, you Quite know. an old soul. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I think so. In 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 many ways, in that I'm really, I don't, I don't really enjoy f- fun. Um, it's not really, <laughs> it's, it's not thing. But yeah, in, in that kind of thing, I'm I'm really not frivolity. One, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not one for going out and partying much. I enjoy, uh, uh, watching f- films and 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 yeah, enjoy getting enjoyment that way. For years, a friends of mine thought I hated New Year's Eve. Right. And I don't. It's my favorite. It's one of my favorite nights of the year. But I stay in on my own and watch a film and yeah. cook something nice because that's how I like. Because that's where I, the, the, that's how I get the most joy. Yes. If if you're not someone who enjoys going out, if that's the biggest night of the year, why could, Put could go out? Because yeah. that's what you're meant to do. It's like that's not what I enjoy. That means I'm going to spend. New Year's Eve, kind of feeling uncomfortable and being a bit. Oh, is it okay to go yeah, home? Well, yeah, I feel it's, itchy. It's ten it past itchy, midnight. Is that have I stayed long enough? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, don't be rude. Don't, don't so, be offended if yeah, I go now. As that was it, I was like, I'll I'll celebrate each year by doing what I love, and so, I'll you know I'll pick the film, I pick the food, I really nice. get into it and have that's a nice, quite jealous, have a nice night. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I two, two, a couple of episodes ago on Unfiltered, John Amici was here. The um, NBA, the lad from Stockport who grew up to be an NBA right. superstar. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, d- I never really understood what introvert meant until he was talking about being an introvert because he's now a psychologist, a motivational speaker. Wow. He's played NBA at the highest yeah. level. But he's an introvert. And he just yeah. said that his job, he loves working with people. He loves getting a reaction out of them. In the psychology, he loves taking them on a journey into a better yeah. place. But it drains him. People drain him. And, and yeah. actually, he gets home, he closes the door, and that's when he recharges. That's when he is who he really, really is. And, yeah. and I just heard echoes of that then. Completely. I, in recent years, I've tried to... I, again, I think a bit of, of self-analysis within reason is a hugely positive thing. Of course. And I was a, f- a good friend of mine had been saying that, oh, you need to come out more and you need to... Uh, uh, do this and that. And I was trying to think, well, do I? Like, have I got yeah, stuck yeah. in my ways? Let's not assume that I know what's best. Let's go, well, would that be better? And one of the theories I kind of came up with was that although it's it's second nature, taking some kind of control of my stutter is constant work. Yes, of course. So that could be why I'm per- I quite enjoy the amount of time I get to spend on my own because that's the time I'm not having to yes. try and make sure I'm not stuttering in this, or replacing words or whatever else it might be. Again, that that could be completely wrong and over over analysis because so it could what? just be an introvert. Yeah. But yeah. again, that's what I kind of found as yeah, it is peaceful. Although I like interacting with my mates and with friends and on the podcast, and although I'm comfortable with stuttering, you still. Who knows? Want to get sentences out as clearly as you can. So I'm still constantly trying to make that work. So it is exhausting to have a long evening of conversation and sometimes exhausting in the most beautiful way. Like I've had podcasts that I felt so drained at the end, but so happy because I need to go home and collapse. But I've just got to hear the most amazing stuff off a guest and. At no point have I given away the fact that I was way out of my depth. Um, I've, I've managed to paddle just right. And, yeah, things like that are nice. It's, I, it's I that nice that. feeling of drainness. I, I think we do that. often in society put too much um, value on, on happiness. And I'm, mm. I'm not meaning that in a negative way. Happiness is bloody great. I love it. But it's not the only emotion and shouldn't be... The only goal. There's other feelings of of reward and of passion and of pride, and exhaustion can be a wonderfully mm. rewarding thing if the exhaustion has come from something that was worthy of it. So I think that's that's something I've always kind of had in my head that I don't need to be out drunk with mates going, yay, this is the best. It's like, I've done that, and that's nice every now and then, but yes. it's not the only one that's on my list. And 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 the confusion, I guess, for people. Who, who aren't built in a similar way yeah. is the the impulse then to stand up in front of a room full of people, um, which could yeah. be construed as the polar opposite of what yeah. we've just been describing. Completely. So when, when you were working on the album and still still at HMV, before you took the big leap into, yeah. into the unknown, backed yourself really, gave yeah. yourself a year to see Completely. if it was going to work. When you were writing and recording, having never performed, was it in your mind that, 
a conduit to performance, or, or, or would it have been a self-contained artwork? Is it? Is I think it's. I, I I think a lot of it is my mind tricking itself. Yeah. So on all of this writing side of it, at no point was I particularly thinking about the performance. I knew that that was something that I wanted to do and had to happen, but I wasn't thinking about how scary that was. Right. And I remember the first time, because I did, I quit my job and I did a thing called the Relying on the Kindness of Strangers tour, where I'd sent a load of flyers out to mates around the country. And this is the stuff of, of, of the, the Hollywood movie of your life. This yeah. is when you were sleeping in the back of your car, yeah, turn, turning up on a, van, just, not on yeah. bills, asking if you could do a set, just that asking kind of if thing. I can turn up. And again, Performing to the crowd outside, the queue. Is this all was, true or is this yeah, all... Yeah, this, this is all true. And, and that was the moment of, again, of fluke genius was my mate Chris came came with me on some of it and at first we were like we'll go to town centres turns out town centres have got a lot of people but not necessarily a lot of people who want to hear hip hop spoken word (laughs) acapella stuff (laughs) so what we did was we'd get to each town and look at gig listings and go oh look and Mr. Scruff's in town or, or Buck 65's in town. He's mm. literally going to get my target audience and line them up against a wall in the most l- literal form. So I'd turn up outside their gigs and perform there. But I said that the first time I went this to do one... This is really one, ballsy, though. And, that's and, and it. I've it, got this image of you as not at all shy or backwards in coming forwards, but I mean, do you gird your loins before you get out of the car and go and stop performing? I for think the- what I've done, though, is, again, it's that trick. I've made it... I've 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 removed it from being an option or a choice. Yeah. So I've quit my job. I've saved up. I've made a record. So when I went it. to do that first one, it was outside a DJ Shadow thing where he was doing an album playback at, yeah. um, at Ireland or wherever. And me and my mate were there, and we'd driven there. We're like, that's the perfect place to go. And we got there, and I was just looking for reasons not to do it. And my mate Chris was like, right, go, like, let's do it. Let's go. We'll set up there. And I'm like. Yeah, I'm not sure if this and that. But again, at that point, the pressure of me, mate, again, he didn't know that I was no. crapping myself. And didn't, and it was that. It was like, right, I've, I've written it all. I've got to just do it now. And I think that was perfect because starting off on street corners to people who haven't asked to hear you, it meant that as soon as I was doing gigs where I was meant to be there, I wasn't nervous in the slightest because really? that was the birth of fire there. It's like, oh, what, there's a roof? and they want to see me perform, great, this is easy. So it it meant the performance was a really comfortable thing, I think, because of that route. But again, it's that that backing. I'd I'd always, I'd heard, I think it was, I'd heard Seinfeld say it, um, just if you've got something to fall back on, then you're more likely to fall back. And I didn't at that point. I'd quit my job. I'd been working in retail. Again, it doesn't seem much, but I'd been working in retail for five years, and that's a career. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had no other qualifications or career options. So I kind of, I think I've done that a lot in my career, is back myself into a corner and gone, well, you've got to now. Skydiving. Yeah, so kind of everything I've done has been that. It's like, well, you're here and there's anticipation now, just on you get. And a lot of them have worked out, Clearly, it feels like. How? But So just in that tiny little interregnum, that little period between your first ever proper performance and putting your life in the back of the car and setting off around the country. Mm. How would you gauge success when you were performing to people who didn't know who you were and hadn't asked to see you? How would you know whether it had been a worthwhile the episode? Su- uh, the success initially was just the doing it. And again, right. I'd been working on these songs for ages. I have people ask me a lot advice on writing and things like that. And mm. I, I often have to tell people, look, I didn't get taught poetry at school. I've, I can't teach people because I don't know I was never taught I've always just Mm. done it but my one bit of advice tends to be if you're excited for people to hear it it's probably done it's probably there and I think that was it I'd slaved over this stuff so once I got past that uh, that first one I was like I'm excited Mm. for people to hear this because it didn't exist anywhere else it existed on MySpace and my whole thing was I had flyers to give people that had my MySpace on because my thinking was, even if it's the best, if if I put on the best performance in the world, they're about to go in and see a band they actually like and have actually heard. (laughs) So they're going to forget me. So if I give them a bit of card to take home with them, hopefully in the morning they'll go, oh, I remember that guy, and and, and look me up on MySpace and and find me there. And that kind of... And a lot did. A lot did, and that's where it all built from. It built... 
all built off MySpace. It's a real it, moment, wasn't it? Because, I mean, yeah. I guess the other most obvious example would be Lily Allen, mm. who, who really did, despite you know, having connections, as it were, family-wise, she really did just build that it from nothing. That was a massive influence. Like, Was it? A, a Lily Allen had just done that, and at the time I was doing it, it me, Kate Nash, Adele and Jack Pagnate were all on MySpace and we're all... I remember having a night where I'd found Adele and she had found my page and we're messaging each other back and forth and I'd heard Daydreamer and it blew me away yeah. and she had heard a thousand words and yeah. thought it was great and, oh, and things like that so just going back and forth I'm going oh this is amazing and it all just felt I don't know I don't know if anyone was thinking about particularly careers at that point sure. but it all just felt achievable it's like oh we're doing this and people are appreciating it and it works and you so. can get an audience for the first time things have moved yeah. so quickly since yeah. and now it's it's, it's, it's such a normal thing or an almost expected yes. thing. But, but then to get an audience would have been yeah. almost impossible two years previously. And again, on on kind of going back to the masquerade thing was I did all of this in the Midlands or North first because my belief... And I performed, I had my CD, I performed, I'd wear a, a suit and a trucker cap. Mm, right. And my belief was I've learned it all tight enough that if I'm away from home, they're going to assume I'm big down south it's brilliant so and then when i went down south i had a bit of a following so if they looked at my myspace i had a bit of a following so i seemed big and so it was all faking it and the fake it until you make it okay. a, a type thing and it was exactly that because i had the cd and printed a flyers which again that i'd saved up i think i saved in those five years and again it's a reflection of the time and my cheapness but i'd saved about four or five grand and that was to last me a year right and I made my record and had some flyers made and lived in, in my van. Sure. And that was it. But again, it was that illusion. It was that but assumption. But also a sense of momentum, which which you, yeah. you feed on that. That keeps yeah. you going as well. Completely. As it? soon as you start to to get reactions, uh, one of the people in the queue at the Buck 65 gig in in London, so, so that was after we'd done a lot of the Midlands, that mm. was a guy called Buddy Peace, who's done numerous uh, uh, remixes on my, on my records now mm. and, and produces my podcast. So again, it's that thing of yeah. those impacts w w were made. It was people like, I was at that gig and I remember yeah. that and yeah. Can you remember the first time that you sort of looked up and there was a crowd of people in front of you? Um, it's a tough one because yeah, again, it was, was, asked, was such a quick into... a momentous thing. But when uh, me and Dan Lassac started to work together, again, so... Who you'd worked with HMV I'd worked before. with HMV. He's one of the people I've sent a flyer to, right. so he booked me. In fact, he gave me my first indoors gig because he was okay. one of the people who booked me. He, he had a, a night he worked on in Reading, yeah. and he was higher up on the bill, and when he played, he'd remixed a few of my songs. And that kind of got us to start working together. And the first song we wrote that wasn't a remix was, was Thou Shall Always Kill, and that came out and got in the top 40 and that was a year almost to the day of me quitting my job and saying I'll, I'll give it a year so it was that thing of in a year yeah. I'm in the top 40 now yeah. I'm still living at home with my mum like, but, like but, when I'm not in a van but, but I mean still. you know it seems viable um, so yeah it was kind of after that when we did the Camden Crawl and we did two or three gigs at the Camden Crawl and, and the first one was at the Barfly mm. and we looked out and there was a queue up the street and we were like, this is a real th a thing I know. And it was a tough real thing because Dan had a job at that point that paid all right. Right. And he had to make decisions like, do I leave my reasonably well-paying job to be in a band or do I be an adult and go, well, don't be silly, but we've got queues around the corner and, and the top so, 40 records. so he quit. Yeah. So he kind of, that was a big deal for both of us and, and that's the the one that stands out in my mind up until then it had all been oh what are we doing tomorrow and what's the next gig and what's the next thing and that was the first time we got a chance to pause and go this is this is a real thing and I think at that point as well we'd printed up a load of, st of stickers that said adjust a band because in Nash Always Cool we had a big bit in the middle that listed bands and said just a band yeah. and we gave them out on the first night of the Camden Crawl and the Camden Crawl obviously it's Camden the streets are covered in posters for bands yeah. so every band had a just a band sticker on oh, by the wow. next day which yeah. instantly had this kind of infamy moment of, the, of of that song being a soundtrack of that year's Camden Crawl yeah. and that was a real kind of yeah 
Again, all, all fluke moments and stuff but like that. Flute, go, but also serendipity. It's a word that's yeah. popped up on, on, on Unfiltered a lot. The right place, right time, and having the honesty and the humility to acknowledge it rather yeah. than thinking that, you know, the, the, the opposite, if you will, of a sense of entitlement, isn't Completely. it? Completely. I think luck is a huge part of most people's careers, but it's not the only part. Not for sure. Um, yes. no. you've, <laughs> Riz Ahmed has, has summed it up amazingly on my podcast when he was saying how you've if you've spent your life preparing for an opportunity no matter how that opportunity comes if it's luck if it's the right place the right time the work you've put in to then smash that opportunity is what skyrockets your career there's no luck that you get the opportunity and then by luck you're good at it and by luck people a react to it mm. there's there's all the work that's gone in to build that that when that that bit of luck comes you can can make the most of it but you'd been doing the preparation not in preparation yeah sort of you'd been doing it because this was what you wanted to be doing and it turned out that it was actually a preparation for when for when thou shalt always kill one nuts and that's taken me years to be comfortable with has it because why? Why again mean? i think it's that it's that working class mentality of not not, not wanting to take a shortcut right. and not wanting to jump ahead or feel unjustified and not to keep jumping ahead. But <laughs> when I decided I wanted to get into acting, and again, yes. a bit well, of massive film well, So how did that happen? So, so I mean, you, you are an established act, yeah. both live and yeah. recorded. You're not bored, but you're thinking, all right, well... Uh, let's see what else is ahead. Yeah. Part of it was, I was like, I don't know if... I think a 40 or 50-year-old rapper is cool. Okay. To me. Yeah. To me. And not judging anyone else or thinking, to me, I don't know if I want to be on stage at 40 or 50 rapping and feeling I'm not connecting with the right people or whatever else. So, and acting, as said, had always been, even when I was at HMV, I was making some little sh- short films with my mates. Yeah, just every form of expression for you, wasn't it? Pretty just much again, everything. Clawing at anything other than, than putting on a suit well? and working you in the did. city. You do street art, photography. Yeah, it's kind of everything <laughs> in like there. The Michelangelo. Just try anything. Um, <laughs> but so yeah, I, I, through the music, I'd met Riz Ahmed, who was mm. a rapper as well, and we did a track together. I'd met Nick Frost and Simon Pegg, who were into our music, and I again, they didn't know at the time. But I had signed copies of the Space DVDs, all sorts of stuff. I was a nerd for those guys. And all of them kind of, because in the music videos and on stage, I'm quite theatrical and performing. And they were always saying, so when are you going to move into acting? And Riz got me a meeting with his manager at the time, who was a big deal manager, had him and Andrew Garfield and some amazing people. And she sat me down and she said kind of, look, I can't take you on, but I'll give you some advice. And I, I sat down to her and said, look... As with everything I've done, I want to start at the bottom and work hard and learn my craft and get good and do it the right way. And she almost patted me on the head and said that that's adorable, but if you've built a name, move. you use that. All that will ever do is get you an audition. It won't get you the gig. Yeah. You need to then go and be good yeah. and do the work yeah. and, and things like that. And that was her bit of adv- adv- advice there. was like, if you want to start at the bottom, then I need you to... Sh- shave your beard off stop doing anything else other 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 than auditions her point was you've spent 10 years on stage Mm. and exactly as you said there that was your prep that's the work that you've put in but when you do that sad song you're not actually sad you're acting and when you do that angry song you're not actually angry you're acting you've been acting for 10 years it's different and you're gonna have to refine it and you're gonna have to learn but you don't have to feel guilty about taken a shortcut because you've got some mates in the industry or you've got a fan base that will mean that people will go oh let's have him in for an audition and that was huge for me because it's liberating for you hugely liberating it gave me an excuse to just jump at anything and everything and not worry about oh do i deserve to be here if you don't deserve to be there you won't be there long and you had pinch yourself moments not long after tons of them everyone i've worked with in three years of doing it, working with Tom Hardy and Stephen Graham and Charlie Hunnam, Guy Ritchie, just all sorts of amazing people. It's like, and they're teaching me as well. They're sure. all, I got on well with Kurt Sutter and a few others. Uh, Tom Hardy and Stephen Graham have been huge ones and guided me along. And one of the reasons I made a good impression was I had small roles in these things. Mm. 
and you do your scene and then 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 they wrap you and i'd always ask if i could stay and watch and learn because i've got Tom Hardy and Stephen Graham there in front of me Doesn't acting, doing that. it over and over. <laughs> I didn't go to acting school. I hadn't had a chance to learn it. So I'd hang about all the time and learn because otherwise I'm in a hotel room sure. having room yeah, service yeah, or yeah. being bored. And it's not like I had tons of lines uh, 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 to learn. It's sm- sm- smaller roles. And people kind of seem t- to notice that and like that. And it's in Taboo in particular on the BBC. I think it's the reason my character grew and grew because I was always there. I was kind of like a, a John Terry sitting there in my full kit, just like they, they would have bits where, oh, we're missing someone. This. Oh, we need an ex. Oh, we need Here someone to kill this person. I'm like, we'll get Pip to do it. And the fact that I was there and throwing in ideas and showing that whilst I'm new to, to the in- industry, I'm not new to the art form. I've watched a lot of TV and a lot of film and of a broad spectrum of, of styles and approaches. So, I was getting to put my opinion in with Tom Hardy and 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 the script editors and things like that. I go, it might work if you do it this way. And stuff was being taken, and that was mind mind blowing to me. But again, it makes you realise that everyone in all of these industries, they're all just people doing stuff. And a lot of them are waiting for the tap on the shoulder, aren't they? Yeah. Waiting to be told. That's your that's been rumbled. That, oh, that's <laughs> been the biggest thing on the podcast. Talking yeah. to people like Armando Iannucci, yeah. who's like he still has. The fear that he's going to be tapped. Imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly that. That, he, that he's going to be told you've got to go. And I'm like, but you're Armando Iannucci. Tell me about you're it. Create, you've yeah. created some of the best things in British comedy history. And he's still, every project finishes, he's like, that's probably it for me now. That's, that's right. probably all my ideas done, or they're going to kick me out any minute now. So, yeah. So, that plus the. I'm trying to think what the pithy phrase is to describe your sort of locking your fire escapes, putting yourself, as you've described, in a position where you have mm. to jump out of the plane. You can't not do it. Those two things knitted together. Yeah. Incredibly powerful engine. And and the way th- things happened, again, uh, the luck elements were hugely... kind of made anything possible in my mind. The mm. fact that mm. the first song I wrote became a top 40 hit, it's like... This music industry is easy, isn't it? And just again, just it's, it's going to sound weird, like, but I think there's a lot of good and bad in social media. But I became friends with Nick Frost and Simon Pegg th- through yes. social media. I'm now friends with again just an endless list of people who are my idols, mm. and that kind of makes you go right. Anything's achievable then. Et- anything is is possible because I've seen that in my own in my own life the fact that I got in this TV show or in that show the first three auditions I had I got the roles yeah that made me and again it's been it's always a beautiful balance because after that the next 20 or 30 auditions I didn't get right and that's a key balance to keeping you as a levelled and grounded person that the one band before I did the Scroobius Pip stuff or became a Scroobius Pip the one band I was in as a bassist and we had two ever gigs and the first one Rapturous Applause was one of the best things ever. It was only a covers band, but mm. everyone went crazy. I sung on one song. It was mad. We did another gig off the back of that, and we had to stop after four songs because it was so bad, and oh. we just cut the whole gig short. And that's the per- in my both. mind, that's the perfect two to have. Yeah, the one that makes you yeah. go, it's worth it, <laughs> and the one that goes, you, makes you go, you're just normal, though. Um, I, I came up, I text... A poet, a, fr- a friend of mine, Polar Bear, who's a writer and author as well, because I knew he'd get it. Because I came up with, I realised my own mantra um, recently, and it's just, I ain't shit, but I ain't shit, and I think that's just a perfect mantra. Either way you put it round, yeah. like yeah, 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 I'm, yeah. I'm not a big deal, but I'm not, I'm not nothing either. Just, just that as my that just it. Yeah, it, it's, it's a driving force in all things. And that that came from that first gig and from these first acting things where I did three and then my fourth audition, it was for Guardians of the Galaxy 2. And Guardians of the Galaxy 1 had been one of my favourite films of all time. And I got that audition and done it and thought, I'm going to get that then. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's how easy four it is. It works. And I didn't. And that, oh. was, that was a perfect thing. That was perfect because it made me... Again, I think there's... Can you can you rationalise it like that at the time or are you, are yeah. you just gutted? At, I've, got know, weird, can... I've got weird... I've got... A, yeah, a weird rationalisation yeah, skills in that. Like, I, 
I spoke to, I feel like I'm dropping names now, but I auditioned no. for a Neil Gaiman series recently and I know Neil a little bit um, and I didn't get it. And he gave me some feedback and said he thought it was great, but it just did, didn't fit. And my response to him was completely honest, was the thing that excites me is it's a new, it's a Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett series though. So it's going to be good. And there's going to be a, a second series and the excitement of how much better I will be by the time the second series comes round, it was huge to me. It's like, right, I didn't get that now, but acting-wise, the things I've learned in the last two years just feel huge. So imagine how much better that's I'll be th- I mean, when the next series comes around. And th- That's quite inspirational, mate, it's, to it's, hear you speak it's, like it's, that. It's, it's, it, it's very rare. It's finding the right things at, a, at the right time. Around that time, I'd watched a documentary on... Um, I can't remember his name. The Japanese... Um, artist who painted the the wave Hikush I can't think of his name Hokusai but, um, yeah yeah uh, Hokusai, Hokusai that's it um, and there was a, a documentary on him and about the fact that when he was 50 or 60 he's one of the most successful painters of his his generation he decided he was he was a rubbish and he decided to, to work hard and he, he said I think it was he said that by 60 he'd be good by 70, he'd be a master. By 80, he'd be elite. And by 90, every brushstroke could be a work of art. And he died at, at 75 or something like that. So, and in that in that documentary, Hockney said, painting is an old man's game because his view is that it's something that you should always improve upon. Mm. Sports, things like that, there's going to be a diminishing return. There's going to be a point where you get to peak. And music as well, I think. There's going to be a point where you get to peak and fall off. Mm. He said that about painting and it, got me so excited about acting because that that feels the same now i'm not talking box office wise but sure. skill wise yeah. honing a skill the more the the longer you're doing it the more gigs you get the better and better and better you're going to get and that was hugely exciting to think in 20 years time the acting gigs i'll hopefully be having that and how much better i'll be than i am now and that's that's hugely exciting and, and you'll be ready for and, yeah and because uh, that's the possibly exactly. the biggest um, consolation of all if something doesn't work out you can just think that you weren't ready for it yet i wasn't the, the right person when i went to see guardians of the galaxy 2 and saw the guy in the yeah. role in the lines I'd, I'd i'd read i had a moment of oh i don't know how i'm gonna f- gonna feel about this and then the first scene ended and i was like he was great that's that's nothing i like what i would have done that's perfect so yeah, again nice. instantly made me go well that just means there's more down the line. And there's always examples of it. With I did a TV series called The Bastard Executioner, and it's the first thing that I did that actually aired. I got I did King Arthur and I got cut out of it. Amazing experience though. Again, I learned <laughs> off all these people. You still get paid. Exactly. I got paid at an amazing time. Um but I did the Bastard Executioner and it was a big sh- show on FX. It was planned to be their big their their Game of Thrones. Sure, yeah. And it was Kurt Sutter who wrote Sons of Anarchy in the Shield. It had one series, the viewing figures weren't great, and Kurt decided to cut it. Now, at the time, my my mum was like, it's a shame it's been cut. But I was kind of like, well, you know, we'll see what's next. And yeah, yeah. I got taboo, and I wouldn't have got taboo if the past execution hadn't hadn't been cut so it is that kind of feeling that it's all it all works itself out in the end coming there's always a next thing there's two things i want to talk about we're about to run out of time yeah the, the first is and, and i don't know if this is a fair question to ask you if it's something that you've given thought to but you, may, you mentioned class a couple of times mm. and it seems to me and, and i'm from a very middle-class background it seems to me in britain in particular at the moment that working-class people are discouraged from culture, yeah. that they are almost taught that it's suspect or yeah. poncy yeah. or, you know, in the context of Brexit and experts and mm-hmm. all that sort of thing, that, that creativity and self-expression are not for them. Yeah. So yeah. I, I wonder partly how you managed to swerve that and arrive at such a different conclusion. And the second point is, because I know that since you lost a friend a few years yeah. ago, you've focused a lot on mental health yeah. issues. You've talked to the, a lot with your Distraction Pieces yeah. guests. And I think there's a link between those two things, mm-hmm. uh, between self-expression. Uh, obvious, yeah. obvious. I'm not saying anything clever, but but it, it, it perhaps explains why white working-class people suffer more from some of these problems than other sections of yeah, society. Yeah, completely. Do. And it's it's weird that I mean, I was lucky that my parents, from early on, had the outlook that as long as I'm happy, yeah, 
that are then they're proud. And that was a that was a hugely positive thing. Class, my mum always remember I have my mum or my dad saying, "If you have got a little corner shop up the road, as long as you're happy, then we're proud of that. There's no you need to go and work in London or anything else." So, mm. so that was a huge thing. So it put happiness over income. Yeah, I guess. Um, or status. Yeah, or status. And 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 they're 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 so readily attached in our current society. Um, Again, not to keep going on about him, but a guy, a Rutger Bregman, who wrote this amazing book, a, a, a Utopia for Realists, he talks in there about how our society is bizarrely built or st- structured um, from a job hmm. point of view that the jobs that we could do are without the easiest get paid the most and the jobs that we need get paid at the least. Hmm which is bizarre mm. and the example he gave in in his book was in New York in the in the, in the 70s that there was a garbage strike um because c- c- I wanted higher pay higher health benefits and all that after 6 days the mayor buckled and gave them everything they wanted because the streets were awash with garbage people were getting ill it was generally yeah. dangerous in Ireland a few years later there was a banker's strike they ended up striking for six months and then just coming back. No one noticed. Because no one noticed. They just made do. It wasn't ideal, no, sure. but no one noticed. And oh, it's the same. You think weird, of most of the it? big high-paying jobs, we could do without them. And most of the essential jobs aren't paid that well. And it's, again, in this book, it was, it was amazing uh, to read, but he talks about how we can balance society in that way and make it so that it's not... Because, again... We've got a society, like we all talk all the time of the fear of, of robots yeah. taking all of our jobs. That was previously a dream. Yes, it was not that long ago. It's like, not that long ago. Leisure was a desired and and, yes. and, and, and and praised thing. We wanted a 15-hour week and yeah. things like that. Whereas yeah. now we're like, well, I'm not going to be able to work. Uh, yeah. When did work become our focus oh. over culture and, and, and bettering ourselves as humans? It's all, no. And I'm the biggest, I'm, guilty of it myself I'm a workaholic I love having work to do but I found it in some kind of culture but still I need a a balance of it Uh, reading this book helped to make me go right I shouldn't feel guilty if I watch a TV a whole TV series because I'm taking something in I'm learning uh, something from that and yeah I think that's something that would help because again particularly in the working classes it's work that's what you do you're you're a man and you provide for your family and you, you go out you work all the hours you can and you get as much money as you can there's never any talk of how much is enough no. there's never any talk of how much is too much like hours wise there's always that's what it is to be a man and it shouldn't be um yeah. i just as a kind of a rounding up on that i had a, a meeting with a casting director recently and he was amazing and he's not a fan of actors which is which made him my favorite casting director ever. and i was saying to him i've not had any acting lessons and i plan to at some point but i want to find who I am as an actor first and then then refine it rather than have someone tell me here's how you act mm. and become another drama school kind of mm. conveyor mm. belt and he just said perfectly he was like mate if you want to know how to act uh, go to an art gallery and look at some art go and watch a play go mm. and do just do, take any culture in and you'll find it the art is in everything and you you draw that in and then you push it out however you have interpreted it and that was kind of again I worry it gave me an excuse of not having any acting lessons ever because like ah I don't need to I'll just right. go and I'll I'll just be inspired but it's a balance it's going all right I think I know the answer to my last question yes. which is what what's next um more acting yeah. and more podcasting the podcasting is the beautiful one that people get confused on I have people all the time saying it's going well you've had some big names are you going to turn it into a tv show or yeah. a radio show and I'm like no, the podcast is the goal. It's already there. It's already yes. achieving exactly yes. what it's meant to be. Um, I've been asked to do stuff at, at, at numerous different radio stations. I was going to start n- naming people then, but that's that's rude. Um, and I said no because I don't think I could go back f- for me to it's commercial the radio. Freedom, right, it's the absolute freedom, hundred percent. The best example I have is I had um, a young a lady on called Mira who was brought to this country. In, in sex trafficking and I said to her before and you can go into as much or as little detail as you want this isn't grief porn yeah. you can do 
do what you need. And this was in conjunction with a, ch a charity at the time. And she went into a lot of detail and she cried and I cried and pretty much everyone who listened responded saying that they cried because mm. it was, was brutal. And her explanation and what I agreed with her on was she'd just come to the realisation that she was the victim, not the guilty party. So if she wants to talk about it openly, to censor her is putting in some way on her that it's it's her fault, it's her mm. responsibility. If she wants to talk about it as she can, these things are happening and they need to be heard. And we recorded it. It was a roller coaster. I put it out and the charity I was working with, the guy there was was furious, but they didn't push it. And they do a lot of stuff with the BBC and with ITV and with all sorts of other people. Um, it's Sport Relief or Red Nose. Yeah, Again, it's not anything yeah, yeah. bad on their part. Sure. But because of the rawness of it, I know that it could never have been on BBC. It could never have been on ITV. But because some stupid uh, little podcast I started three years ago exists, Mira had a platform to tell her story how she wanted it told. It didn't have to be edited or polished to make us feel comfortable listening to it. Oh, oh, we should feel uncomfortable because there's horrible people in the world and, you know, a nicely polished advert isn't the same as here's the, the, the gory truth. And that just just, just meant the world because I knew if the podcast didn't exist, that would never have been told how she wanted to tell it and that that's the value of podcast to me. Isn't it? Scooby's yeah. Pit, thank you. Thank you. And I'm joined now by the producer of Unfiltered, Rich Cooper, who um, tradition demands joins me in a little bit of post-match analysis. It demands it. It does, doesn't it? Absolutely <laughs> demands it. There'd be, be, be uproar in the streets if we didn't, <laughs> if we didn't do this. Um, he's a bit of a dude, isn't he? He's an absolute legend. I think there's no <laughs> a other lovely word man, for it. though. A really lovely, thoughtful. I didn't, as you, you know, I was honest, I didn't know a huge amount mm. about him beforehand and, and I always get slightly intimidated by properly cool people you know, yeah. effortlessly cool people I don't, I, sure, he's yeah. never spent a minute in his life trying to be cool he just just is he just is just and, lives and, and breathes it yeah he was lovely yeah he was fantastic I I mean I was sort of staking my credentials as a producer here on the line because you yeah. didn't know too much about him but I was confident that this was going to be a good conversation that you get on yeah because um you know, you're interested in interesting people, and he's yes. an interested, an interesting person. Like, yeah, and, and he was kind of, kind of doing this podcast thing long before we'd even heard of each other's existence. Yeah, so he he knows the game. He knows what to it do. It's really interesting that. And do you know, because a couple of people, I don't know if you're getting this yet. Is when, when is James going to talk to someone he doesn't like, or when mm. is James going to talk to someone he disagrees with? Yeah, and I, I spoke to him about that after we'd finished the recording. And how did you? Yeah, and I said, do you get that? And he goes, yeah. And I said, what what, what, what do you do about it? He goes, I say, no. Why would I want to do that? I said, especially you. You spend your day job arguing with people all the bloody time. Why, yeah. why would you necessarily <laughs> want to? But we shall see. We shall see whether or not we have to. Stop the kind of fan clubbery and, and, and <laughs> do something a little bit more brutal. Well, maybe I don't know. I think. Do you want to listen to an hour of people arguing? No. Well, I do. It's great, and it you know pays pays my mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do three hours, don't you? <laughs> yeah, but but this is, is different, isn't it? It's, it's got a space and a life of its own. And hearing one of the real pioneers of the genre, yeah, explain it similarly gives it gives you a sneaking suspicion you might just be doing something right. Wow. Let's find out. <laughs> and if you have enjoyed listening to this even a fraction as much as I have enjoyed making it, then do remember to subscribe to Unfiltered wherever you get your podcasts. And um, I tell you what, you could leave a, a, a review and possibly even a rating as well. That would be richly appreciated. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien. Brought to you by Joe.